You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that really wants to know how many people want to kick some ass. Hello and welcome to another ass-kicking episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This, as always, is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics, starting at cover date June 1990 and ending at cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the best Green Lanterns ever to grace the four-color comic book page. Hi again, my name's Sean Eagle, and I hope you guys had a good couple of weeks with the episodes that I put out. I was working with Dave Walker, covering the uh, crossover series, Guerrilla Warfare, and I really had a great time talking with him about those issues. Dave's an excellent podcaster, and if you're not listening to Flash Legacies, you're missing out some on some of the best podcasts on the internet. However, because I was recording, well, a little ahead of time, I didn't really get a chance to read your folks' emails, and I've got a few built up, so as soon as we get done with the intro and all this, I'm going to get you to your guys' emails. Again, I really appreciate everyone emailing in, writing in, and posting at the uh, website, uh, com. It is one of the few sort of, I guess, social media sites that I'm actually on, even though it's not really a social media site, a la MySpace or Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. I guess I need to get on it. I would also up front like to give a special thanks to all the people that I got to meet out at Star Wars Celebration 6 in Orlando this past couple of weeks. Uh, Scott and Chris from the Two True Freaks website sort of got the whole idea together. Uh, Dave Atterbury uh, provided a house for Scott and Chris, well, actually an apartment for Scott and Chris to stay in. Uh, I got to meet Bill Robinson, I got to meet Josh Bertone, I got to meet the hair metal hero, who is, he is the hair metal hero. I don't think anything else could describe it. Uh, we had Star Wars trivia, we went and saw people in costumes, we did the Two True Freaks panel where we covered the Marvel comic Star Wars. It was awesome. I really enjoyed hanging out with these guys, and we're planning on having something like this too. So if you're in the podcast community, uh, go to the Two True Freaks website. You might figure out where we'll be getting together with more podcast luminaries and do something like this again. But for right now, let's take a quick break and play some promos, because we've got some awesome coming up today. Not only do we have issue 32 of Green Lantern, which deals with the new Guardians, which should be fun... We've got the first issue of the Guy Gardner solo series. This is what I have been waiting for, folks. So, after the promos, we'll go ahead and get started on the show, and we'll get to it. See you on the other side.
Hey, Obi-Wan, your lightsaber's showing. Take a bath, Pete. Live long and good. Suck it, Frodo. I'm sick of being a goddamn scarecrow. I'll give this podcast thing a try. Two! I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick your ass. Wow, you've gone from very fine to near mint. What a man. Size matters not. Two true freaks. Lipson.com. The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pad Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. And we're back. So let's go ahead and do something we haven't done in a while. Check the old Just One in the Guy's letter bag and see what we've got there. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first letter this time around comes from Mr. Luke Giaconetti, host of Earth Destruction Directive over at the aforementioned Two True Freaks website and a purveyor of the websites Bean Carter Hall and El Jacone's Comic Bunker. Check them out, why don't you? Luke writes in, Sean. Curse you, Mr. Anthrax. Curse you to the darkest, blackest pit in the universe. You just had to put Lucky Star on your show by Madonna, didn't you? I was singing that song all day after I listened to that episode, which would be bad enough, but I work on an industrial site, and it's just not appropriate. Curse you! Ah! Sorry, Luke. I... It just fit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I Unfortunately, I did get a couple other... Uh, comments about my choice of songs for that episode, but I apologize if it caused you any problem on your work side. He continues, anyway, just finished listening to the third Evil Star episode this morning, and while this guy is certainly a C-lister, I liked the episodes, and though the story itself sounded pretty good. 
Evil Star sounds like he has potential. I did some research on him on Wikipedia, and he's not and was not surprised to discover that he's a Silver Age Green Lantern foe. He really does embody that sort of simple, yet also crazy, Silver Age motif for bad guys. He developed a source of power, used it for evil, and now he's going to fight Green Lantern. Sounds like a plan to me. Yeah, even though Evil Star is pretty much a C-lister, and did pop up originally in the Silver Age, I think it works with what was going on in the Green Lantern comic at this time. Dave and I both commented that they were trying to go for a Silver Age feel in the post-crisis age, and they were trying to take stories and elements from the Silver Age and put them in a more modern era and sort of spice them up. With Evil Star, it kind of worked. I think it worked a lot better personally with uh, Hector Hammond and Gorilla Grodd. But I think they were just testing the waters, so to speak, to see if people would be alright with having Silver Age characters in modern age comic books. But Luke goes on. Evil Star would get mentioned a few times during some modern Green Lantern stories, but I don't think he's appeared in any capacity in quite a while. Considering the amount of beamcasters out there in the Green Lantern universe right now, with all the different Lantern cores and all, I think a guy who can absorb and convert stellar energy could be a viable threat. Personally, if I was writing one of the Green Lantern books, I am currently waiting by the phone for DC's call. (laughs) Yeah, uh, me too. Me too, Luke. I'm waiting for the call any day now. I would introduce Evil Star as a character who is completely insane, driven beyond the brink of madness from being separated from the source of his power. Once he got a taste of his old powers, he would become completely obsessed with amassing more of it, until he himself was something of a living weapon, ravaging everything in his path. His madness would make it useless to try and reason with him, and his sheer power would make it difficult to fight him. I think something like that has merit. Uh, I'm from the school of thought that any character can be used well if put in the right situation. Evil Star, to me, is such a character. You know, from what you synopsized there, Luke, I could definitely agree. Evil Star could be a good character if someone would write him the right way. Unfortunately, this last story, he just seemed like a overbearing, monologuing, Silver Age stereotype. I've always been of the opinion it takes the right writer to get the character right. And essentially, that's why I'm trying to do in showing these Guy Gardner books to you. A lot of people don't get Guy Gardner right. They don't get the character, and they portray him as just a one-dimensional buffoon. Hopefully, by the end of these... Well, by the end of the show, not this show right now, but the end of the entirety of these shows, people will have, hopefully, a better appreciation for the character. Luke continues... Sorry, Luke continues. As far as Repo and Piston, though, I got nothing. Same here, Luke. I don't think they even merit, you know, Wikipedia pages, so... There you go. Jocasta made me think of the Avengers character of the same name, who, if I'm remembering, correctly started out as the Bride of Ultron. I remember her from a stint of Tony Stark's personal AI for a time during the late 90s under Kurt Busiek, I think. Yeah, I remember the name Jocasta having something to do with the Marvel comic continuity, but I really couldn't place her. I'm going to go with you, Luke, because I know you are the Iron Man person. Regarding Goldface, it's funny to hear you talk about him as a GL bad guy, because I'm only familiar with him as a supporting character during Wally West's time as The Flash, as written by Jeff Johns. 
By then, Goldface had gone legitimate and become the head of a local workers' union in Keystone City. His ex-wife eventually became the supervillain known as Blacksmith, who stole some of the formula which gave Goldface his powers, modifying it so she could manipulate metals. She formed a team of rogues such as Magenta, Double Down, and Girder into an organization called the Network. This eventually led to a major conflict between her network and the people of Keystone, led by Goldface. It's a pretty cool story. It's more remembered nowadays for the fact that it cleared the board for Johns to, be, to begin using the classic rogue skin, which culminated in the massive Rogue War story several years afterwards. Hmm. That sounds kind of interesting. You know, I diss on Jeff Johns every once in a while simply because, well, he likes to come in and mess things up in DC continuity, and also, sadly, it's easy for him being, you know, the CEO of entertainment, I guess, at DC, to be the person to hang all the ills that you have about the comics on. Jeff Johns is a good writer, and I will give him credit where credit is due. This actually sounds like a fun story, and maybe it's something I'll have to go look picking up. Uh, Luke continues, I really like to cover these three issues. The Starlings reminded me of little goblins who would hang around the big orc boss from something like Warhammer. Yeah, it did have that kind of feel, the sort of evil minions. Like I said, what I kind of figured was because I've got little kids and they watch these type of movies, was Despicable Me and little minions like that. So it's a good reference anyway. Again, he finishes up with, Anyways, keep up the good work on the show, and I dug the Hal Jordan story, and I'm looking forward to hearing some more about Guy Gardner. Luke. P.S. Have fun at Star Wars Celebration. Well, I can tell you that I did have fun at Star Wars Celebration, and Luke, we definitely miss you there. We wish you could have been there. And then our next letter, oddly enough, comes from Luke Jacinetti again. He's writing an addendum to the Evil Star letter, he said. Sean, did I forget to mention that Evil Star actually has appeared a few times in the animated projects? He was a member of the Secret Society in the last season of Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, where he made a few appearances, though I don't think he had any lines. He also made an appearance on Batman Brave and the Bold, fighting against the Blue Beetle. He also appears in Illustrated Green Lantern Children's Book, called Beware Our Power, published in 2001. Not too bad for a goof-like evil star. Yeah, I'll agree. I do remember seeing him in the Justice League Unlimited series, but I do think he was kind of a background character. But the wonderful thing about that show was they could take the rogues from various villains and put them in as background characters and make them sort of Easter eggs for the nerds like us who like to go, oh, wow, is that Vigilante? Oh my gosh, that's Vibe! That's amazing! I can't believe they put Vibe in the in the Justice League. That is so awesome. So, catching Evil Star in there, even though if he didn't have any lines, or actually didn't have much to do, was just kind of neat to see him. I'll agree with that, Luke. Moving back to email, our next email comes from Michael Bradley, host of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman and co-host of Green Lantern's Light a podcast dealing with the Green Lantern comics starting around the 1980s, just pre-crisis and moving on. He hosts that with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor from Pat Smash and From Crisis to Crisis, respectively. It's a good show. Definitely go check it out. Michael writes in saying, Hey, Sean, I'm playing catch-up on your episodes. Uh, try that again. I'm playing catch-up on all my podcast listens, and I just heard episode 27 today. Lucky Star... Really? I think that's cause for revocation of your man card. It goes way beyond... Oh, wait, I played Nickelback on a recent episode, didn't I? Never mind. Carry on. Michael. 
Yeah, uh, throwing stones when you're in glass houses, Michael. Uh, Mr. Nickelback. <laughs> Definitely not something you need to be doing. <laughs> oh, no, but I, I had a sort of back and forth with Michael. We, uh, uh, he's been adding a lot of uh, music uh, cues and stuff to the thrilling adventures of Superman, and he put Nickelback in one of his... Uh, in one of his shows, oh, what was I want to say, episode 86, and they were taking a photograph, and they had something to say about destroying the photograph, and Michael put in the uh, wonderful song by Nickelback there. <laughs> it's just awesome. Uh, again, Michael, I apologize for Lucky Star. It was just a choice, and they can't all be winners. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, Lord. But moving on to a letter that isn't dissing me for playing Madonna songs. I've got one from the awesome Professor Allen. He writes in saying, Sean, in episode 29 of your podcast, you talked about the legal, the legal ramifications of a character making money off their image and how these laws may seem to vary from Marvel to DC. Yeah, I was talking about how Olivia Reynolds could market the dolls and do it without, without Hal Jordan or Green Lantern gaining any money from it because of copyright and him being a superhero and him being unwilling to release his identity. Uh, Professor Allen continues, for anyone interested in this or similar topics, topics, I would recommend the upcoming book, The Law of Superheroes by James Daly and Ryan Davidson. I reviewed this book on my blog and talked about it on episode 47 of the Book Guys podcast. Feel free to mention either of these facts. I'm enjoying the show, and keep up the good work. Professor Allen. Awesome. I actually went and listened to the Book Guys podcast. You can find it on iTunes. It's a really wonderful and informative show, and episode 47 I really liked, and actually is kind of topical for today if you're in the United States. They dealt with a book called You're Not As Crazy As I Thought, But You're Still Wrong, written by Phil Nessier and Jacob Hess, who were basically uh, two diametrically opposed well, not political figures, but people with opposing political beliefs, one being very conservative and one being very liberal. And it was basically a book about, you know, how you can talk about these things without getting into the ridiculous name-calling and actually try and come to a conclusion on certain political beliefs. It was a really good uh, it was a really good episode, and it covered a really good topic, which, you know, is covering politics, which is something that's going on heavily here in the United States. If you guys want to, please go check out the book, the book Guys podcast. It's on iTunes. You can go p- pick it out. And I had no idea that the doom-loving Professor Allen actually had a podcast that he was doing. So please uh, go check out Professor Allen's podcast. He does it along with a couple other guys, one who's, a, I guess, a knowledgeable uh, book podcaster, another one who is a Jesuit priest, and, oh, I'm trying to remember what the other guy does. But uh, it was a really interesting show. Episode 47 was really great. Check it out. Uh, Professor Allen, thank you again for writing in. And finally, I got, well, a forum post. Well, not really a forum post. A post on the webpage, justoneoftheguys.libson.com. And this is from Bill Robinson. Bill I met at, up at Star Wars Celebration. If you want to know, he goes on the Forum for Geeks board as Formosan, I believe. Great guy. Really fun to meet. I can't wait to talk to him again. Unfortunately, I don't know if he has any place to plug, but if he has a website or anything that he wants to be plugged, 
get back with me and I'll get it on there. But Bill writes in, he says, Sean, if you get this twice, sorry for the repeat, I had an issue with the spam bot blocker. Eh, I don't know about any of that stuff on the website. That's all lips and stuff, so I apologize if you had a problem with it. It all came through okay. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you for the podcast, and it was good to meet you at Celebration 6. I started listening to The Guys this week, and I've enjoyed your, and I've reached Emerald Dawn too. Wow, it's a week just going through and you got there? That's awesome. Thank you for powering through that. Bill continues, hope to catch up to you in real time soon. Up to now, the storyline I enjoyed the most is the one with Nord. Me too, Bill. Me too. I wonder how my dog Comet would act with the green power ring. It would probably lead to trouble. Next thing you know, my cat Alvin has a yellow ring, dogs and cats fighting together, mass hysteria. Yeah, I don't think dogs and cats should ever get power rings. Oh wait, we've got Norton Dexter. Wow. That's not good. Anyway, I'm off to listen to more podcasts and cut the grass. Damn. Where's a power construct more when you need it? Thanks again, and look forward to hearing more and conversing via email or Skype. Bill Robinson. Well, thanks, Bill. i am got you hooked up on Skype, and sometime maybe we'll have to get together and just shoot the breeze. I'd love to do that. But that finishes up emails and posts for this week. I want to thank everyone for writing in and posting on the board. If you want to post on the board, the website address is justoneoftheguys.lipson.com. You can post on individual episodes, or you can always write in to the podcast at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. I'll make an effort this time to actually get the emails read in a timely manner. But with emails out of the way, initial stuff out of the way, let's go ahead and take a look at the comics today. The first one's going to be Green Lantern number 32. Green Lantern 32 had a cover date of early November 1992 and a release date on or about September 15th of 1992. Hey, September 15th. Hmm. That sounds like it should be an important date. I wonder why I think that. Dave? Cover price was $1.25 US, $1.50 Canada, and 60 p UK. The title was The Third Law Prologue, Chaos Coming. Make your own jokes there. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was Tim Hamilton this time out, inker was Romeo Tangal, letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Bucanza, and editor Kevin Dooley with CFI Aviation Advisor David Montoya again. Sitting alone on a beach, the Floronic Man listens to the Song of the Green. Whatever that means. I guess that's if I was reading Swamp Thing, I might get it. But the song is being interrupted by something dark, something not of life. Suddenly, black tendrils burst from the water, surrounding the Floronic Man, causing him to let out a scream of terror. Cut to the hotel room of Hal Jordan, was just waking up from a long night's rest. Shuffling around in his boxers, ladies, Hal recounts his latest exploits to the reader, then charges up his ring. Debating upon whether or not to go see Carol, Hal decides to head out to purchase a plane for his new business venture. Changing into Green Lantern, Hal phases to the roof, knowing that Carol is probably still asleep. Unbeknownst to him, Carol has been up all night fretting about Hal. Determined not to let her former lover keep her in a funk, Carol gets dressed and heads out to do what every woman does when they're feeling low. Shopping. Okay. Meanwhile, on the island where the new Guardians reside, 
<sighs> Tom, Pieface, Kalmaku, and his wife Turga discuss their plans with their family and Tom's responsibility of caring for the Chosen. Wondering why they're still here since the Guardians have returned from their interdimensional whoopee session, the duo spot the black tendrils that attack the Floronic Men. However, before they can determine what they are, the tendrils attack and the two run for it. Flying over the Southern California landscape, Green Lantern decides it might help in the search for Aresia if he contacted the local police. In a completely sensible manner, Hal appears as a floaty green head construct in the police headquarters. No pun intended. He asks the officers to look out for a yellow-skinned, super-hot alien that he'd totally like to bang, even though she has the mind of a 13-year-old. After telling them to contact the Justice League if they get any info, Hal lands near the airfield where the plane he was looking at is for sale. After meeting with the pilot, Hal says that he'd love to check the plane out and hopefully purchase it for his business. Back on, back on New Guardian Island, Gloss is busy zapping the tendrils and defending the Kalamakus. Having rid the area of the encroaching black vines, the group sings Harbinger, approached with the head of the Floronic Man. Wondering what could have done this to him, Tom tells the group to get Extraneo and Ram and check on the Chosen. But the tendrils have returned, and they swallow up the two heroines. Running away, Tom and Turga find their situation hopeless, but Tom has a desperate thought that the head of the Floronic Man can help. Meanwhile, Hal is landing his newly purchased plane at the airfield near Montoya Bay. Hal approaches the airfield owner and says he's ready to open up shop in the airfield. At the same time, Carol Ferris is showing off her new makeover. The former lover has almost crossed paths as Hal heads to the diner where the waitress he was flirting at with works. His mind wrapped in thought, Hal all but ignores the service advances until he catches a glimpse of Carol strutting by the window. Wondering why she'd be dressed like that, Hal ponders how to deal with his trouble with women, as the waitress has had enough of his indecisive crap. Rising out of his testosterone haze, Hal makes the decision to go after Carol and to stop hunting for Aresia. Coincidentally, Aresia is hunting for Hal at the abandoned Ferris aircraft site. Wandering through the rubble, calling Hal's name, Aresia is suddenly attacked by plants growing from the ground. Asking what's going on, Aresia sees the half-formed face of the Thoronic Man calling out for the Green Lantern. being a story centered around the idea of the new guardians, which I think are lame characters, this story isn't half bad. It is bringing a lot of the old storylines that we've seen in recent issues of the comic and bringing them all together, including the story of Aresia's return, which was covered in Green Lantern Quarterly, which maybe or maybe not I'll be covering. If you guys want to go seek it out, please do. 
uh, about Tim Hamilton's art. It's good. It's a nice sort of in-between of Staten's and Bright's. It's not what I'm used to, but it works. It's serviceable art, and I think Hamilton does a pretty good job depicting characters and making them distinct enough. And plus, he's pretty good, as we'll see later on in my coverage of this, of drawing the human form, both to uh, excite the ladies and the men. So, there you go. But we'll go ahead and head on notes. We'll start out with the cover. And I've got to say, the cover of the book is pretty striking. Any cover that has a hand scraping down the side of something with black ooze coming to sort of engulf it is always a good cover for me. It's really hitting all those horror vibes that I like, and it's doing a pretty good job, the cover. Page one, The New Guardians. Yeah, we're going to have to be dealing with these guys for a few issue, so get used to it. We've got the Floronic Man saying that he can hear the song of the green, and again, I wonder if this is something that's touched upon in Swamp Thing, which was playing at the current time, or if it has a relationship to the New 52 idea of the red, the green, and the rot that's being portrayed in Animal Animal Man and Swamp Thing. No idea, but if it is, it's an interesting throwback that they're taking up in the New 52. Page 4, panel 5, here we get something for the ladies. Yeah, like I said, Tim Hamilton definitely does the uh, physical body really well, and here's a shot of uh, Hal and his BBDs walking around all hot and everything. So, ladies, there you go. Page 5, panel 1, as Hal is trying to charge up his ring, he decides that it'd be a good idea to charge up his ring with the toothbrush and a bunch of toothpaste in his mouth, which gives us the line, In bogeth gleth gay, in godeth might. Yeah, probably you want to go spit the toothpaste out and say the oath then. However, on the same page, in panel 3, he does say the oath, but it's the first time, I think, that Hal PCs up the oath. Instead of saying, in blackest night, Hal goes, in brightest day, in darkest night. I don't know whether this was editorial, trying to coddle to that, but it does seem a bit wonky that he decided to change, decide to change the oath, and I do believe in a later issue he gets called on for it. So, yeah, changing darkest, or changing blackest to darkest, for whatever reason, just rubs me the wrong way. Page 7, panel 2, we get Hamilton bringing a little something for the guys as, uh, Carol Ferris decides to get undressed, and we get a nice shot of her in her little sort of Sigourney Weaver white panties and a bit of side boob as well. It's uh, it's very well drawn, and Carol is very fit. Uh, unfortunately, on the bottom panel of the page, she does look very 70s. But, again, very attractive. Hamilton does the female form and the male form very well, and I guess, you know, if he wanted to get into uh, fan fiction stuff, I'm certain he could do art for Fifty Shades of Grey, the comic book. Page 9, panel 2, we've got Tom Kalmakadu saying, I'm torn. How can I turn my back on the task the Guardians have given me, hoping to protect the Chosen, the next step in human evolution? But ever since Guy Gardner's visits, I've been wondering about the Guardians, I've been wondering if the Guardians even care about this project. Yeah, explaining what you're doing on this island with these bunch of, you know, superheroic freaks is 
not really selling the importance of, its, of your mission. I really don't care. Page 10, panel 2, and we get reason number 1 this issue, why Hal is a big and jerkous guy. Giant, unexpected, floaty head at the police station, demanding that they look for his possible booty call. Yep, go ahead and freak the police officers out, Al, by showing up as a giant, floaty, uh, disembodied head in the middle of their coffee break, and tell them, hey, look for this girl that I'm looking for, uh, because I might want to hit that. Wow. Page 11, panel 4, we get reason number 2 this issue, why Hal is a big and jerkous guy. Rather than landing without much fanfare from flying in as Green Lantern, Hal decides to dissolve his uniform and get into his civilian clothes. But rather than landing quietly, he decides to ring-construct himself up a Silver Surfer surfboard and surf down to the ground that way. Classy, Hal. I bet Stan and Jack would be proud. Page 12, panel 2. The person selling Hal the plane is named Corkin. Now, the name sounded unusual, and it sounded a bit too... Well, a bit too contrived to actually be a random name they picked out of nowhere. So I did a little searching around, and supposedly uh, Flip Corkin is the name of a character that appeared in the comic strip or the comic book Terry and the Pirates. Uh, He was based off a character named Philip Cochran, who was an actual officer in the United States Army Air Corps, and who was the basis for the character of Flip Corkin in the Terry and the Pirates strip. So... That was kind of a nice, nice, kind of a nice callback that uh, the, the creators decided to do. I'm not certain if it was exactly intended that, but Gerard Jones, I think, has sort of eye for that kind of thing and would put those little clever Easter eggs in there. Page 15, panel 5, we see Harbinger holding up a shrunken apple head. I love those things from the 70s. You take an apple and you carve it out and make it look like a Oh, wait, that's not a shrunken apple head. That's the remains of the Floronic Man. Oh, my bad. Ugh. And why in the world is she just holding the head of him? Ugh, creepy. Page 18, panel 5. We get reason number 3 of this issue, why Hal is as big of a jerk as Guy. Hal decides to go to the diner to hit on the waitress that he met from issues prior, and then when he gets there, he completely ignores her and because he's caught up in his own thoughts. Then on the next page, panel 6, reason number 4 why Hal is as big of a jerk as Guy. Obviously, since Carol is getting all dressed up and feeling good about herself, she must be trying to impress Hal. That's what Hal's thinking. Oh, Carol's dressing up? She's looking good? Obviously she wants to court me. Well, I'd better do something about it, because I know I'm the only important thing in this woman's life. Uh, Hal. Clueless as ever. Page 21. Now, I know in Emerald Dawn, Ferris Aircraft was pretty much destroyed and obliterated by Legion, but I would have figured in due time they would have fixed it back up and everything, so why is it all destroyed and taped up by police tape? Was there something I missed? Maybe I'll have to ask, you know, Dave and Michael and Jeffrey about this if I ever get to talk to them on Green Lantern's Light. Just kind of odd. Then finally on page 22, we get this sight of the tendrils of the Earth forming up around Aresia and coalescing into the sort of half-formed head of the Floronic Man. The only thing I can really say about this is 
ick. I mean, it's a bunch of mossy growths and one sort of googly eye staring at her. I don't know about you, but if this happened to me, I'd either want to check my medication or just run away screaming. It's pretty horrific. But that's it for the issue. The letter page uh, has a lot of stuff to do with issue number 25, and it seems that opinions are divided upon uh, whether or not Hal should be the one true Green Lantern of Earth. There's a lot of people at the beginning saying that they're glad that Hal is back, and then thankfully there's some people who were like, very disappointed that Guy is gone. So, it's a pretty balanced spreadsheet of them. Uh, they've got a good number of people saying that it was good to have Guy gone, and the same number of people saying that they're going to miss him a lot. So, luckily, we've got more Guy coming up here in just a few minutes. Specifically, the one thing that I've been looking for since I started this podcast. Guy Gardner, number one. So, I'm going to take another break here and throw in a few more promos, and when you come back, episode, or issue-sode, or issue whatever you want to call it, of Guy Gardner, number one. Stay tuned, folks. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. We were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me, listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. 
This is the 20 minute long box. The 20 minute long box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. And we're back to start in to the greatest comic book series ever created. Well, okay, it's Guy Gardner, but I sure as heck love it. So let's go ahead and get started with it. Guy Gardner number one was cover dated October 1992, with a release date on or about September 8th of 1992. The cover price was $1.25 US, $1.50 Canada, and $60p UK. The title was A New Guy in Town. Writer this time was Gerard Jones. Penciler was the awesome Joe Staten. Inker Terry Beatty. Letter Albert Guzman. Colorist Anthony Tolan. Assistant Editor Eddie Braganza. And Editor Kevin Dooley. Life is a dream. Freedom. Power. Respect. And they're all mine. They're finally all mine. Heed these words, fellow listeners. For they are the first spoken by the one, the only, Guy Gardner. Well... The first spoken in his solo book. Smashing into a porn shop, Guy plans on cleaning up the New York cleaning up New York his way, the manly way, with his fists. Oh, and a little help from a steady throb of yellow ring power. Knocking down the walls of Black Hand Smut Shack, Guy streaks into the sky, ready to show the people how a true hero cleans up the city. A hero that doesn't hide behind a secret identity, a man named Guy. However, not everyone is pleased with Guy's heroics. A news report shows Guy's declared war on scum has irked many city officials. Maxwell Lord, head of the Justice League, says that Guy acted outside the league's sanctions and that he will be disciplined. People on the street are divided in their opinion of Guy's new tactics. But one person who is beyond irked with Guy is Superman. The two argue their points with Guy all but threatening the Man of Steel when Ice steps in between them, telling Guy to stop and that Superman is right. Peeved that the love of his life is siding with the son of Jor-El, Guy walks away and says he doesn't need the league. He just needs his adoring public, including the two big-breasted floozies that can't stop fawning over our hero. Furious, Ice tells Guy that she's glad to be rid of him, and Superman says that she did the right thing. The two head back into the JLI, JLI headquarters, as Superman makes a call to the JLE, and Ice wonders what she's done to the man that she loves. Outside, Guy isn't really enjoying all the adulation he's getting, but all his troubles are about to change, as press agent Bucky Sharp is here to make Guy Gardner the star he wants to be. However, before Guy can listen to Bucky's pitch, a tomato beans him upside the head, thrown by a disgruntled member of the crowd. Guy threatens to mop the floor with a bomb, but Bucky intervenes, telling Guy that he would be using his power, or he should be using his powers, to take down the big bats. Guy has aspirations of facing down those who wronged him, like Superman and Green Lantern, and Bucky is happy to set those venues up, provided that Guy give him 10% of his income. This, of course, amuses Guy, as he lives in a rundown apartment with General Glory. Bucky convinces him if the baseball players can make billions swing a bat, surely he can do the same wielding the world's most powerful weapon. The thought of earning the big bucks intrigues Guy, and he and Bucky discuss his plans for the future, as two burly figures watch the duo from the shadows. 
cut to the JLE headquarters in London as Superman makes a call to Green Lantern Hal Jordan. Wally West, better known as The Flash, answers the call and relates his and Hal's recent dust-up with Grodd and Hammond, and then calls Hal to the monitor. Superman tells Green Lantern the problems that Guy is causing in New York City, and Hal thinks he has a solution to the problem. Beaming a signal to Oa, Hal contacts the Guardians and asks them to send a Green Lantern who might be able to deal with Guy without resorting to violence. Both Hal and the Guardians agree that the one person who might be able to reach Guy Gardner is Kilowog. Back in New York, Guy is being dressed down by General Glory, telling him that heroes don't work for money. Rising up from his beat-up sofa, Guy replies that he's not being greedy, he just wants what he deserves. But the argument is cut short by a series of tremors outside the building. It seems that Thoom, Boom, and Buck 50, the fake Green Lanterns from the Guy and Snort storyline, are out to settle the score with Guy. Buck 50 slams Guy into his apartment, almost knocking it down. Guy then braces up with some yellow construct supports as he plans to KO the trio. Guy clobbers both Thoom and Boom, but just as he's about to deliver the final blow to Buck 50, the charge on his ring goes out. Out of power, and with the former foe lanterns preparing to pound him, it looks like Guy's new superhero career just might be cut short. There's a new kid in town. you've got drama, you've got comedy, and you've got a wonderful cliffhanger to boot. Staten's art is just really amazing here, and Terry Beatty does a great job inking him. They really work well on this issue, and even though there are certain elements of Staten's style, sometimes his facial features on women doesn't really work out, this is an issue that couldn't have been drawn by anyone but Staten. As I talked with Thomas T.J. in the uh, Guy Gardner Reborn episode that I did a few weeks back, Staten has a knack for drawing things in a cartoony manner. This allows him to get away with some certain things that you wouldn't be able to get in more realistic type car- uh, comic books, like Green Lantern or like the Justice League or whatever. It's this cartoony type feel that actually is a bonus for this, sh- this issue, and makes it stand out among the rest of the stuff that DC is publishing. But let's go ahead and head into notes and see what I have to think about this, and hopefully give you an idea of why I love this so much. The cover is awesome. It is Guy, two-fisted man of action. And there he has. He's got his two fists. He's ready to pound some butt. With uh, Guy shooting at him behind and buildings crumbling behind him, Guy is just ready to kick some ass, and they've even got the cover copy with the first issue, Action! And the arrow pointing towards Guy's ring, saying now he's tougher than ever, so you've got to imagine that this is going to be a Guy Gardner who's not going to let people get away with stuff. He's going to put some beat down on people. 
page one, one of the things that also works with this book and that I really don't see, or maybe I just don't notice in other books, is the use of onomatopoeia. Those words that are used to make sounds, like shaboom, or in the Star Wars, Marvel Star Wars stuff, Chewbacca's vocalizations, like gronk and hruff and stuff like that. It's really put to good use in this comic, and it really adds to the, well, to the fun feel of it. And we get a prime example of the use of onomatopoeia on page 2, panels 1 and 2, where we've got the uh, sound effects of wham, bam, and then Guy Gardner punching in the wall saying, Thank you, man, which is an awesome reference to the uh, David Bowie song, Suffragette City. Uh, wham, bam, thank you, man! Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see this in modern comics. I don't see the use of onomatopoeia. I don't see the sound balloons over explosions and what saying boom. This is stuff that I love, and the fact that it's in a 90s comic, which is majorly considered to be kind of goofy and kind of ridiculous, but here it's used for fun, just really puts a smile on my face. Page 5, panel 1. One thing that Staten does well is he does mm, what I'd consider to be caricatures. Um, this one here is a nice caricature of Ted Koppel, who used to be the host of the TV show Nightline back in the 90s and such. And uh, it's a pretty good appearance of him. They'll usually stick these in in comics so people get an idea that it's actually set in real world. So here's uh, Ted Koppel here. And on the same page of this sort of six-panel grid, we get, in panel five, we get a very unusual-looking caricature of a uh, black man saying that he's tired of living in New York and all this violence and crime, and he's going to move to New Jersey. And I have to wonder myself, is that actually a step up? Sorry, people from New Jersey. And then finally on the page, at the bottom of it, we get a shadowy man looking at a TV screen being lit by it, and you can't really tell who it is, and it looks like he's going to be the antagonist for the uh, series. No idea who it is. I actually haven't read this in a while, so I've got no clue. Could be anyone. Then on page 6, panel 1, we get introduced to Superman at the Justice League. Unfortunately, uh... Staten doesn't draw Superman's face really well. It doesn't look like Staten, or I'm sorry, it doesn't look like Superman. It looks more like Captain Stern from the Heavy Metal movie. Are you Captain Lincoln F. Stern? I am. Lincoln Stern. You stand here accused of 12 counts of murder in the first degree. 14 counts of armed theft of Federation property. 22 counts of piracy in high space. 18 counts of fraud. 37 counts of rape. And one moving violation. How do you plead? Oh. 
Not guilty. Now, of course, none of these charges could ever be leveled at Superman, and nor would I ever say that any of these charges would ever be leveled at Superman. But his facial features don't look like traditional Superman. It's Stern all the way. And not Roger Stern. Heavy Metal Stern. Page 7, panel 3. Again, we've got what Staten does best is draw people's expressions on people's faces. He really does a good job at capturing people's emotions. And the look on Guy's face is ice, the person he's confided in most. And to be honest, let's just say it, the person that he loves. Siding with Superman just tears him apart. And because Guy is one of those people who really isn't in touch with his emotions, and I hate to get touchy-feel like this, but he really can't express how he feels, he acts out in anger. But he's really hurt by this, and Staten does a great job a great job at portraying it in this panel. Then on page 8, as Guy steps outside to his adoring masses, he's got a bunch of people out there. He's got some people who are just tell him to give him hell, and a woman who's screaming that she wants to have his baby, and other people who are calling him a fascist insect and telling him to get out of town. So the opinion's kind of mixed on whether Guy's a good thing or not. And then on the same page, you know, I criticize Staten for drawing women, but in this one panel, the way he's drawn ice from behind is really nice. He's got a really good... He's got a really good grasp of the female form, and ice here looks really good. Until you get to the next panel, where he's drawing the close-up of Ice's face, and unfortunately, it looks like he drew the Ice real doll. And if you don't know what a real doll is, Google it, kids. Moving on to page 9, panel 5. Again, I hearken on Staten's strength with drawing facial expressions. You know, after Superman's basically told Ice to come inside and leave Guy alone, Guy, who was trying to impress Ice with his show of bravado and everything, realizes that it's gotten him nothing. And the look on his face is that of just heartbreak and disdain. It's really good artwork. I can't comment on how great Staten is suited for the character of Guy Gardner. Page 10, panel 2 we get the introduction of Bucky Sharp, professional Alfred E. Newman impersonator. If you don't have an idea of what he looks like, yeah, just take an image of Alfred E. Newman and give him the most bizarre blonde haircut ever. He's one of the guys that if you look the word shyster up in the dictionary, they would probably have an image pointing to him. Pretty, pretty disturbing looking person. Moving ahead a bit, page 13, panel 3, we get Wally recounting all the goings-on last two episodes for Superman, where he says, Well, would you believe I was turned into a super genius, Hal was turned into a Neanderthal, and we beat an army of apes with the aid of a talking dog. And of course, Superman replies in a very serious tone, No, I wouldn't. So, we get more comical Wally West here, and also Wally's eating a hoagie or submarine sandwich as well, so he's not taken seriously. So I like that aspect about Wally and Guy. They're the two heroes that unfortunately the, well, uh, not to say the Magnificent Seven, but I guess, yeah, that would be appropriate. The big leaguers don't really take too seriously. That's, that's kind of sad for both characters. 
Then on the same page, panel 5, the way Wally gets Hal's attention as Superman is calling for him is he tells him that there's a cute girl on the video phone. Of course, Superman is kind of disturbed by that, but on panel 6, it does seem to work and gets Hal in there as fast as possible, once again showing that Hal is primarily motivated with the brain below his belt. Then on page 14, panel 6, we get Hal actually thinking for a minute. He's deciding that he needs to resolve a conflict with Guy by communicating with him. Not by going and fighting him, but trying to talk him down. I'll give Hal this. That's actually a clever idea and a clever way to approach it. And the way he does approach it is that he decides to get Kilowog. And honestly, with Kilowog and Guy's relationship, this may be the best way to try and resolve things. Hopefully, Kilowog can be used to talk Guy out of his sort of hard-headed ways. Page 17, we've got more use of onomatopoeia. This time, it's kind of foreshadowing things, as you've got thoom and boom as the sound effects of Guy Gardner's and General Glory's apartment being shaken around, which obviously leads to the outside shot of seeing Thum and Boom out there. Then on page 18, as Thum and Boom still are pounding away at Guy's apartment, each one of their onomatopoeias rhyme. We've got Choom and Kroom, we've got Woom and Shoom, and Thong and Blong. I love it. it. I'm thinking that Gerard Jones is intentionally putting in the these in here, because I'm getting that he's got a wicked sense of humor, and he's suddenly making the book fun. Um, I don't know this, I'm just taking it for granted, because I really enjoy it. Page 19, panel 3, we see Guy creating some ring construct uh, supports in order to keep the building from falling down, which is nice that he actually does try and keep buildings from falling down, provided that his stuff is inside of them. And then on the same page, panel 5, we get, all right, he's coming through, just like they said he would. So there's a little more seeding of the unnamed Big Bad here. And Guy kind of asked, you know, what's he mean, like they said? And then he just blows it off, realizing that he needs to take these guys down. But unfortunately, we get to the final panel on page 22, and Guy's ring constructs have gone away, the power from his ring has gone away, and Buck 50 and the two thing analogs, Thum and Boom, are basically going to come and pound Guy into a bloody pulp. It's a great way to end an issue, it's a great cliffhanger, and again, it's just a great issue. I cannot say how much I enjoyed this, and hopefully you guys are getting some enjoyment out of this too. You can find these anywhere. Go pick these up. They're fun issues to read, and it's just good. It, it, it again shows that comics in the 90s didn't have to be over-the-top violent. They could have a little fun, and this is fun. Another thing that's fun in here is the letters page. Now, you'd think, for a first issue, there wouldn't be any letters, but a lot of the letters are basically from the Guy Gardner Reborn prestige thing that they had a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago. And the neat thing about this is all of the letters are answered by Guy Gardner himself. Well, yeah, it's 
probably Kevin Dooley answering them, but it's Kevin Dooley answering in the voice of Guy Gardner. And some of the responses are great, like, Bob, you sure quote a lot, and you sure ain't got no class. No way Guy Gardner is going to go exposing himself. Sheesh. Earring Boy is probably more of a man than you. <laughs> Earring Boy being extraneo. Yeah, the new Guardian. Yeah, the gay one. <laughs> it's it's totally politically incorrect. It's totally rude. But at the same time, it's funny as all get out. Um, I can't say any more. I can't say enough about this issue. I'm I'm just pretty much speechless. But I do need to go and look at some of the ads to the issues, so let's go take a quick look at those. Most of the stuff is pretty similar. We've got the cow ad for Final Fantasy Mystic Quest at the front of the book. Still don't know what a cow has to do with Final Fantasy, but it's here and that's what it is. We've got an ad for Super High Impact Football, football action so real it's bone crunching, which is another one of these games from the 1990s where they decided to take your average, you know, Madden football game and sort of spice it up with a bit more violence and a bit more fighting. Uh, They've got it here for the Sega system, and I don't know if they have it for the Super Nintendo yet. But if you're a fan of football games and a fan of beating video game characters up, this game's probably for you. Later on, we've got a picture of a black background with a giant hand holding a galaxy in its palm, and at the top it reads, Green Lantern Ganthet's Tale. A story so epic it required two great talents to tell it. Written by Larry Niven and John Byrne, and I believe penciled by Byrne as well. Never read this, and I think I may have a copy of it lying around somewhere, so I may see about reading it and giving you a sort of idea of what it has in it. Maybe it has some tie-ins with what's going on in Green Lantern right now. A few pages later, we've got the typical hodgepodge page, which has an interesting new one for Build Your Own Personal Jetpack. So if you want to be like the Rocketeer, you can send 1995 to these guys and fly around like that. Probably not much like the Rocketeer, probably just burn your legs off, but there you go. Then in the middle of the book, we get, And now a message from Evander Holyfield. Duck. And this is for Evander Holyfield's Real Deal Boxing, which is a pretty poor boxing game for the Sega Genesis. It wasn't anything like Fight Night, and it even really wasn't as good as Punch-Out! So I guess it was just trying to bank on the name of you know Evander Holyfield, who at the time was sort of a contender to Mike Tyson. I don't remember if at the time he beat him or what. I don't remember if at the time if he gotten his ear bitten off by Tyson or not, so there you have it. But after that, you get a page for the Batman Adventures. Read the comic and watch Batman the Animated Series. And this is uh, the adaptation, well, not really adaptation, sort of the comic book version of the Batman the Animated Series, drawn by Mike Parabek, who I'm beginning to figure out is one of the most underrated comic book artists out there, and it's really a sad thing that he's no longer with us. Next page, we get an ad for Rock the Vote, with uh, such bands as the Soup Dragons, Michelle Shocked, Cinderella, Tears for Fears, and Vanessa Williams, all calling you out to go rock the vote. Okay, let's face it, they're all just wanting you to vote for Bill Clinton. But it was the 90s, and pretty much everyone who was popular in entertainment wanted you to do that. 
Then a few more pages in, we get the world's mightiest superheroes are available through subscription. And we get an image of the Dan Jurgens drawn Justice League with <sighs> Blue Beetle acting like Spider-Man, Superman, Fire Ice, Booster Gold, Maxima, and Bloodwind. Yes, Bloodwind. You know who Bloodwind is. Bloodwind. And then on the back inside cover, I guess fighting games were popular because for the Game Boy, the Nintendo Entertainment Center System, and the Super NES, we get George Foreman's Knockouts. So, I guess boxing games with has-been boxers who are eventually going to end up selling you grills that reduce fat in your hamburgers were pretty popular in the days. I wouldn't know. I don't think I ever played this. And on the back outside cover, we get the creepy version of Danny DeVito and the penguin getup with the top hat and hair and all doing a horrible version of the penguin. Well, okay, your mileage may vary. I wasn't in this, I wasn't as enamored with the character as maybe some people were, but it's an advertisement for the Batman Returns video game. And by video game, I mean handheld video game. And by handheld video game, I mean the crappy little thing from Tiger Electronics, which was basically an LCD screen with characters in certain positions that you could move left and right on the screen. Nothing really that fun, but for the 1990s, if it kept kids in the back seat shut up while you're on long family vacations, it did its job. But that is it for the issues this time. Uh, thank you all for writing in. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you all for being patient over the past couple of weeks when I was doing uh, episodes with David Walker. Again, he's going to be at, back for episodes later, especially when Wally West shows up again in Green Lantern, and I can't wait to have him on. So, come back next Friday. We're going to be covering two more issues of, well, one more issue of Green Lantern, one more issue of Guy Gardner, two issues total. But we'll be getting to those next week. So hope you guys have a good week, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, and feel free to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have to count there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about fun and book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast.
The opening music for today's show was Kick Some Ass from the band Stroke 9 off their album Rip It Off. Again, as usual, if you'd like to order this song, or if you'd like to download the song, I'd request that you please go to the twotruefreaks.libson.com website and click the Amazon banner at the top of their page. This banner will lead you to Amazon.com and will allow you to purchase the song, album, or buy the CD from there. You can also buy any of your heart's desire of things at Amazon.com, and by using the link at Two True Freaks, a small portion of money that you spend there will go back to the Two True Freaks website, helping to make sure that their podcasts stay on the air, giving you monthly Star Trek, Star Wars, and comic-y goodness. <laughs> 